0: Lord, we come to this text with some fear and trepidation in some ways. It is just so far removed from who we are and how we live our Christian lives. And yet we know that it is part of the history of your people. It is part of the work that you have done to redeem your people. And I pray that we would not flee from such texts as many would, But Lord, that we would look at it honestly and fairly and see in it what is here for us to glean and to understand of your kind and gracious hand with your people and of your severity and your judgment. And Lord, I I pray that we'd not shy away from those realities of who you are, but I pray that we would understand your word today. Please lead us through this to draw close to you and to know you for who you are. Through Christ I pray, amen. War is a way of life in this broken world. No nation is exempt from the threat of armed conflict. No matter what they might want to do, we simply cannot avoid it. Just the necessity of self-defense will lead a nation to arms. And a basic belief in justice for oppressed people who are overwhelmed by more powerful armies, that will lead the most peace-loving nation into armed conflict. Mortal combat is a way of this world. But there's a darker side to the story of war. Not all wars are motivated by self-defense or a sense of justice. Many wars are driven by nothing more than a lust for power, a lust for other nations' money, pride, and even a hatred of people. In the 1940s, Polish attorney Raphael Lemkin combined the Greek word genos, meaning family, tribe, or race, with the Latin word "cide," meaning killing. And we have the word then genocide. He coined this word to spotlight what was happening to the Armenian peoples of the Caucasus region of Eurasia. Nominally, Christian Armenians were assimilated by the Ottoman Empire in the 15th century. But in 1915, for political reasons we'll not get into, they were targeted by the Ottoman government for extermination. From 1915 to 1917, 1.5 million of 2 million Armenians were slaughtered. They were hunted down. They were summarily executed. Some were enslaved, incarcerated in camps where they were driven to death until the next people took their place. The women were treated particularly with dishonor in massive rape. In inexplicable ways, Armenians were tortured to death simply because they were Armenians. A hatred of that race wipe out those people. We don't want them here anymore. War is a vile enterprise, and genocide is the worst of all. What then are we to make of God's command for the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites in the promised land? If God is a loving God, He is. If He is a good God, He is. If God is a trustworthy God, and indeed He is, how are we to understand His command to exterminate the Canaanites? And in Numbers 31, the Midianites. I think there's far more to the narrative before us than that question. I think that question, in fact, reveals to some degree where we stand in salvation history, that we would even ask that question. But there's there's more to it than that. But I think we're right to start here and to think about this as we enter into such a difficult passage as Numbers chapter 31. To so remember contextually, <clears throat> the Israelites are on the east side of the Jordan River where this star <laughs> indicates, somewhere encamped in that region, which was a region where there were many Midianites that were uh, living there, um, uh, nomadic peoples for the most part. But remember, as we've come here, chapters 22 through 24 We've seen Balaam, this kind of hotshot diviner that comes from the north and is brought down to curse the people of Israel, hired at some cost, considerable cost, to bring down curses upon the people that God has chosen to bless, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and the like. So Balaam has oriented himself entirely against God to harm the people that God has chosen. But God, of course, protecting Israel from Balaam's curse, turning his curses into blessings. And Balaam then, in chapter 25, if we can't win this way by cursing, by getting God to curse these people, then maybe we can win by tempting them to sin. And he seems to be the chief counselor of the Midianites to seduce Israelite men with young virgins who lured them into cultic prostitution in worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And he got through. He accomplished his task. And the Israelites gave in to this temptation, gave in to this infidelity. And in chapter 25, we remember it was Phinehas who executes God's judgment in this gruesome scene by pinning the Midianite princess Cosby, daughter of Zer, to the ground with her Israelite consort Zimri. There in that place, standing for God, standing for his purity and bringing to an end the judgment that had fallen upon Israel in that, at that time. So chapter 25, as we come out of that chapter, there's an egregious, vile rampage of spiritual infidelity against the Lord. And in chapter 31, that now begins to be addressed in a more full way. An account of God's execution of judgment for that whole ordeal takes place here. Remembering back to chapter 25, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down. For they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. God had brought down judgment upon Israel, and God is saying now it is time to execute judgment against the Midianites. What we have here then in chapter 31 is really, in a larger sense, a methodology of holy war. How the holy war that would carry into the Canaanite territory was to take place. And again, we ask a little, somewhat different questions of it today than the Israelites would have asked. But we find it, think of it in these terms, of a methodology of holy war. First of all, in the first 12 verses, Israel executes God's vengeance upon the Midianites because of this whole affair in chapter 25. Verse 1 of chapter 31, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites, and afterward you shall be gathered to your people. This word avenge does not indicate here blind rage. uh, Seeking revenge in that sense, how we use it. But the word can also mean to vindicate. And here I think the idea is to vindicate the holiness of God by meeting out judgment on their idolaters. On these idolaters. The Midianites. They were a loose confederation of tribes. Many of them nomadic. Some of them even marauders. Here we're talking just about the Midianites in this region. So when, when we speak of the Midianites being attacked, we're not there's all kinds of Midianite tribes we're going to meet later in the Old Testament. So it's, it's just those who live in this particular region who have been part of the seduction of Israel in chapter 25. But you then, he says to Moses, will be gathered to your people, reminding us again of Moses' sin against God of the punishment that had come to him because of that sin and that he would die before entering the promised land, be gathered to those of his ancestors that had passed on. A sad reminder of the consequences of sin. But that's what this whole chapter is about, and it touches Moses in a unique way here in verse 2. Then we come to verse 3. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall, stand, you shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. So the army is sent out. These vessels of the sanctuary are undefined. Some think the Ark of the Coven, others argue not the case. We don't know. It's just not stated. There is a reference here to the trumpets that we saw in chapter 10 and uh, probably something similar to trumpets that have been uncovered from that era. These were trumpets of war, trumpets to give commands to the uh, army as they went into this battle. Verses 7 and 8 now report the outcome of the battle. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. They killed every male. That is, those men of Midian who came out against them in battle. Not every male Midianite everywhere. But they, killed, they, they, were, they were very successful in this battle. You notice here, Zer, who's he again? This is the father of Cosby, the Midianite woman who uh, was killed by Phineas. And uh, Balaam is also killed here as the instigator to this whole scene of infidelity against God. It is a a great victory for the Israelite army. Verse 9, and the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods, all their cities in the places where they lived, and all their encampments, and they they, they burned these with fire, and they took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of man and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains by, of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. <clears throat> so the battle was executed to perfection. And the warriors of Israel now return to present their plunder before Moses and the high priest Eliezer. This is not, let's stress here, and we'll say more of it, but this is not genocide. This is holy war. This is Israel executing God's judgment, and they return to the camp in homage to the Lord. He has called them to this mission. And they've accomplished it effectively. We note then, secondly, Israel's incomplete obedience is corrected and her plunder is purified. First of all, Moses confronts and corrects these warriors who return from the battle. Verse 13, Moses and Eliezer the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. Chapter 25. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. There's a lot more going on here than meets the eye, but there was a protocol for holy war, and that was moving toward the land. When you were outside the land, there was the freedom to allow the women to live, the women and the children to live, and to be assimilated into Israel if there was that choice and that decision. The men were to be slaughtered and executed. But once in the land, the people were to be entirely exterminated, entirely removed. Midian kind of falls in between because of the sin that has been committed, because of the temptation that they've been part of in drawing Israel away. It's not certain how they should relate to all of the women and the children. And so Moses, drawing the interpretation that these are the individuals that led us into sin, these individuals should have been killed in this holy war. In the war, in such war, God wipes out, clears the earth of these individuals to start over with a new people. And that is his prerogative. But the Midianites, falling somewhere between with uh, these two protocols, uh, Moses believes they have done what is wrong, and he continues there in verse 17, "...now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves." The girls, that is, they, they would become slaves or later wives who would be assimilated into the Israelite nation. And for these girls, this was a mercy. This was not our day. This was a different day. It was a day where death and warfare and killing was just common practice. And for them, this was a mercy. They could be killed or they could be abandoned to die in the elements, a hideous death, probably by animals, wild beasts. But taken into the safety of Israel, they could, by God's grace, one day flourish. And God permits this in this situation. On the second element of this section, Moses and Eliezer direct the purification of the warriors, verses 19 and following. In camp, so these warriors come back with this plunder, this job to do, to kill more than have been killed. And he says, In camp outside the camp, seven days, whoever of you has killed any person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair, and every article of wood." The context here, of course, is ritual impurity. By contact with the dead, by contact with blood, by contact with idolaters. There was this acted ritual that was always operating in Israel. The sanctuary where God's presence resided was the holy place on earth. And around that sanctuary was to be a protection, not only of the people from God in His holiness, but God being protected from people's sin and being preserved in, a, in a, 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 an act, a play in a sense, that was ongoing to describe the holiness of God. They were to be, he was to be surrounded by protection in his holiness. And so as they came back into the camp, they brought in the ritual impurity of death and blood and the, the horrors of war. So they're to camp outside the camp and go through these purification rituals. Again, nothing to do with our lives. We're not in this world. But to see um, how every garment, every piece of wood, every implement that was taken in plunder had to be ritually purified to be brought into the holy people and into their existence, into their life together. Verses 21 and following, Then Eliezer the priest said to the men in the army who had gone to battle, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can pass the fire, you shall pass through the fire and it shall be clean nevertheless it shall also be purified with water for impurity and whatever cannot pass the fire you should pass through the water you must wash your clothes on the seventh day and you shall be clean and afterward you may come into the camp everything had to be purified to come into the camp so if it's precious metal you can burn it it's it's a ritual cleansing not a not a literal cleansing of course It's not like there's Midianite cooties on the gold or something like that. But it's a a ritual cleansing. So passing all of it through the fire. And then whatever can't go through the fire is also to be preserved, but it's to be ritually washed. So that there was a sense, a, a teaching element here that all had to be purified to be brought into the midst of the holy people. War kills men, which is, as one has said, a catastrophic disruption of God's creation. War is inevitable, it cannot be avoided on numerous levels, but it is always a catastrophic disruption of God's creation. And so there's a recognition of that here, of that we are bringing our impurity back into the covenant people's camp. Victory in battle was followed by the pursuit of this ritual purification, slowly processing everyone back into everyday life. To some degree, then, it was a somber moment in the second generation's growth in obedience. It was not just, look what we've got. Look at this booty. Look at this plunder. Isn't this wonderful? But there was a, there was a, a holy somberness to the whole thing, that we have taken this by war, at God's command, but must all be processed and purified. And then in verses 25 and following, we come as we look at um, this holy war, at Israel's plunder, processed so as to bless the entire nation. First of all, the plunder is divided. Verse 25. The Lord said to Moses, Take the count of the plunder that was taken, both of man and of beast, you and Eliezer the priest, and the heads of the father's houses of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. It was common for warriors in the ancient Near East to contribute some of the spoil to the king and some of the spoil to the priests. But they were not known to share their spoil with their communities. And this, of course, would have, we can understand then, warriors had the greatest potential to gain wealth and thus power and the greatest potential to misuse that power. But in this unique law of God, Israel is not permitted to do that. As you come back with the plunder, it is the, the, the warriors will uh, benefit most percentage wise, but all will be split in half, and the congregation will profit from this plunder. This was God's army, this was God's victory, and God's blessing was then to come upon all of Israel, not just the warriors. Verse 28. And levy all. And levy for the Lord a tribute from the men of war who went out to battle, one out of 500 of the people and of the oxen and of the donkeys and of the flocks. Take it from their half and give it to Eliezer the priest as a contribution to the Lord. And from the people of Israel's half you shall take one drawn out of every 50 of the people, of the oxen, of the donkeys, and of the flocks, of all the cattle, and give them to the Levites to keep guard over the tabernacle of the Lord. Who keep guard over the tabernacle of the Lord? And Moses and Eliezer the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. What's going on here? The tabernacle, the sanctuary, is being supported. The Levites could not go to war because their task was to protect the sanctuary at all costs, at the cost of their own life, to protect the holiness of God there at the sanctuary. So by mandating that the Levitical priests benefit from this plunder, Israel's, uh, the plunder of Israel's fallen enemies, God provides for the support of Israel's worship. Secondly, the plunder is tallied. Verse 32. Now the plunder remained of the spoil that the army took was 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 persons in all, women who had not known man by lying with him. And the half, the portion of those who had gone out In the army numbered 337,500 sheep. The Lord's tribute of the sheep was 675. The cattle were 36,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 72. The donkeys were 30,500, of which the Lord's tribute was 61. The persons were 16,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 32 persons. And Moses gave the tribute, which was the contribution for the Lord to Eliezer, the priest, as the Lord commanded Moses. From the people of Israel's half, which Moses separated from that of the men who had served in the army, now the congregation's half was 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 persons. From the people of Israel's half, Moses took one out of every 50, both of persons and beasts, and gave them to the Levites who kept guard over the tabernacle of the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Notice that phrase, as the Lord commanded. It's found in verse 7, verse 31, verse 41. There is an effort being made here to say this is at the Lord's command. This is a holy war that he's commanded. This was not genocide. It was not unbridled lust for power and wealth. It was not hatred of a people for mere hatred's sake. We have the ability to dominate and harm these people. Israel is serving here as the sword in God's hand, at his command, in obedience to his will. And the plunder is very carefully tallied, very carefully processed back, and very appropriately shared with the entire congregation. We see then the plunder dedicated in verse 48. Then the officers who were over the thousands of the army and commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, came near to Moses. And they said to Moses, "...your servants have counted the men of war who are under our command." And there is not a man missing from us. Now, I want us to think here of second generation faithfulness. This second generation that is rising up and beginning to listen to God and follow His command and trust Him. They're learning faithfulness. Think about that generation here. I imagine that they were rather surprised that not a single warrior had fallen. In the mess of battle, you don't know who you've lost. And so you gather afterwards and you count heads. And you can imagine this one commander counting heads and saying, I didn't lose anybody. He kind of sticking his chest out and feeling pretty good about himself until he talked to the next commander. And that commander, we didn't lose anybody either. Really. Then they go to the next commander. I mean, we're pretty special guys. It's the two of us. We're a team. They go to the next commandment, we didn't lose anyone either. And they, find, they realize this was a unique act of God to preserve every single soldier from death. And I, I don't doubt that this had a tremendous effect upon this second generation that was trusting the Lord to enter into the land. We go to battle against a sizable force and we lose nobody. The commanders assemble their troops, counting their heads. Not a single man. It's amazing that God has done this. And it's an important moment in deepening their faith. They step forward then in sacrificial act of worship, dedicating to the sanctuary gifts of unusual worth. We see this beginning at verse 50. And we have brought the Lord's offering. So I'm 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 tying these pretty hard together, verse 49 and 50. They go through and realize they've lost no one. And there's like this awe that settles over the commanders in the army. We've lost no one. And they come now in somber dedication before the Lord in verse 50 and say, we have brought the Lord's offerings from each man, what each man found, articles of gold, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, and beads to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. They're taking the riches that they have gained. That which was this is the way you kept wealth in that day. You could wear it on your body and it have great value and they're turning it over to God to the sanctuary. Verse 51, Moses and Eliezer the priests received from them the gold, all crafted articles, and all the gold of the contribution that they presented to the Lord from the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds was 16,750 shekels. And the men in the army had each taken plunder for himself. And Moses and Eliezer the priests received the gold from the commanders of thousands and hundreds and brought it into the tent of meeting as a memorial for the people of Israel before the Lord. It says that they are offering this in verse 50 to make atonement. We don't know precisely what that's indicating. But there was some sense in which this offering was necessary to preserve their place before God in faithfulness. And it reminds us of our atonement, how different it is. There was always an offering, a sacrifice that had to be made, often an animal that would die in the place of the sinner. But here, turning over the wealth that they had to the Lord as they sought the forgiveness of sin and a right standing with God. We're so thankful that we stand on this side of the cross and our atonement has been won by Christ Himself. He has given to us, we don't lay down physical sacrifices, but He has given to us His life, His Son, to die and make atonement for our sin, to rise from the dead, to give us life in His name. This is where ultimate, all these pictures of atonement are pointing, is to our Savior. But for them in this day, They see the need to honor the Lord this way and to say everything that we've received and the blessings that we've experienced in this battle are all of God. It reminds us that we too are sojourners in this world. When we think of them plundering this wealth, there's a sense in which we too, all of our wealth that we gain in this life is plunder from this world. It is wealth made possible, much of it, by unbelievers who live around us. Those who make investments. Those who carry on businesses. Those who manage governments and systems. We too come with wealth out of this world's environment. And our wealth, let us remember then too, with these warriors, it is on loan to us. It's on loan to us only for a while. It is a stewardship that we possess for a brief time. We are given wealth. We're enabled by God to plunder the riches of this world in order that we might put it into play for His glory. To carry on, and for us, it's not the establishment of the sanctuary and the maintenance of the Levitical priesthood, but for us, it is the cause of Christ and His church the spread of the kingdom of God through his church that he has chosen as his own. And so why we go to work, why we are enabled by God to make wealth is that we might serve him and be part of of carrying forward his gospel enterprise. Their needs were supplied by God as are ours. But they were careful to give above and beyond what was even expected, to be certain that with each conquest of wealth, God's sanctuary, His service, His worship was well supplied. May God produce that spirit in my heart and in yours. That we realize we're here gaining wealth to carry on the cause of Christ and to be oriented that way. We are given wealth to enjoy. But we are given wealth for them to supply the sanctuary, for us to carry on the cause of Christ. Well, on that point, let me draw out just two ideas here. <clears throat> I've touched on this already, but first, we think, think of being on the doorstep of the promised land as we think of the Israelites themselves. We saw the zeal. Of Phinehas, The second generation of priestly uh, individuals carrying forward this conquest that God has given to Israel in chapter 25. We see the warriors counted and prepared again in chapter 26. We see the, the daughters of, of Zelophehad. And the tremendous faith that they have that we will be in the land and we want inheritance in that land. God will take this nation there. We will conquer and we want land, our Father's land. They claim it. We see here in this battle of victory and we see here in the faithful devotion to God in their offerings of plunder, we see the second generation rising up. It's not a competition, but they leave the first generation in the dust, literally. They've died off in their rebellion against the Lord. But now we have a younger generation rising up to serve God, to trust God. And you just get the sense here with this victory, this is going to happen. This is actually going to happen. After 40 years of dropping in in the desert, there's now a generation that's going to trust God and go forward. They're going to take the message of the Lord and they're going to take the zeal of the Lord into this land. They're going to follow God's command to the promised land that He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They will trust Him to do great things. And So now the protocols of holy war and plunder are established. The second generation, now there's not much more to do. The only thing now is for Moses to die, for Joshua to take leadership, And for them to cross that river and enter into the land that God has given them. I think if our spirit could go back in time and hover over that Israelite camp that day, I have no doubt that we would feel the joy. The pulsating energy. The heightened awareness of God. The growing passion to serve Him in faithfulness. The prosperity of this people being turned back to God in worship and sacrifice you would have known in that moment that this was not genocide. You would have known in that moment in the spirit of that camp that this was God's doing, and that would have been enough. But secondly, as we look back, that's just not how we think on this side of the cross. There's more to work out in our minds. But let's not take away from the people of Israel where they are, what's going on. But let's work some things out in our own thoughts here. God told Adam and Eve in the garden that the wages of sin is death. He did not supply there an exception to the law. The wages of sin is death. And God reveals Himself time and again in the Scripture as a holy God who must put sin to death. He must remove it just as any good doctor who has the capacity would remove cancer from a dying patient. He has to take it out. He has to put it down. It would not be loving of God. God would not be the glorious God that He is, He would be a weak and sniveling God if He did not eventually eliminate all sin and all rebellion against Him. He must. God is our soul's ultimate delight. And sin pulls us away to the death trap of idols and to death itself. God is a good physician. God is a good father. God is the righteous one of all the earth will do right. And that means that he will crush sin in the end. And sin isn't some ethereal mist. It's people living in rebellion against him. Just as we sometimes have no option but to go to war, because of self-defense, because of justice. God must crush sin in the end. And that means He must take out sinners. We may not want to think about that or face that fact, but we must. He must. There can be no other answer. why is it that we struggle to see That God also must judge sin. Well, let let us be clear. It is his prerogative to do that. He must do that. And how he does that is his prerogative. In Genesis 6 through 8, what did he do to judge sin, to take out sinners, and to end this moral cancer? What did he do? A flood killed everybody. If he chooses to take out the Midianites by some other means, that's his prerogative. He could have flooded the area and taken them all out. Actually, some lived. But he has the prerogative to do it as he likes. In like manner, Holy War was designed to wipe out a geographical area clean of all impurity. Under the ban, under this holy ban that was only intended for the promised land, but under that ban, God could plant a new people there who were oriented to, to righteousness. I, I, I think for God it goes much deeper, it goes much more personal, there's much more pain in it, but it's not unlike a doctor taking out a tumor. This has to go. We have to start over. We have to clear out what is wrong. And God senses that knows that with these Canaanites. And on that point, before we just jump into the accusations that are so common that this is just genocide, let's also remember that as we look at the Midianite campaign, that God has judged an entire generation of his own people up to this point. An entire generation has fallen in the wilderness in discipline, including 24,000 of God's people in response to this wickedness in chapter 25. So we should not read God's rage against the Midianites as sheer favoritism. It's not a genocide, a hatred of a people that just gets accepted under the cover of biblical support. God had judged His own people for this same sin. And Peter warns us this way, does he not? It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's where it starts. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I don't know if Peter was thinking about this passage, these chapters in Numbers, but he well could have been. Judgment began with the household of God. A whole generation of Israelites had been removed in judgment. But what will come then of those who are opposed to God? God is contending for his holiness and he has done so with his people first and now continues to do so with the Midianites and eventually with the Canaanites. Jesus will come as well to judge. What we're seeing here is the judge of all the earth who always does what is right. What we witness is the God who will judge all who oppose Him in the end and He will vindicate and prosper for eternity all who honor Him. When Christ returns, as we read earlier in 1 Thessalonians 2, it will make the Midianite campaign look like a church picnic. Remember what we read there. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven He will come. He will come to destroy every soul that walks in rebellion to the Father and will eventually hand over the kingdom to the Father in perfection. What we're seeing, we can can judge chapter 31 of Numbers from our perspective if we cut out a lot of ideas and just narrow in on how is it that God could do this. But if we step back And we look at what God is doing, He's going to bring sin to an end. He will judge the sinner ultimately. And I don't know where each of you is at as you understand that idea. But if that strikes fear in your heart, that's a good fear. I think you should tap into that fear and understand that that's what God is teaching us here in this passage. And what we are to understand that sin will be judged and I'm a sinner. But we also then look with great joy today to this whole sacrificial system. And in fact, the passages that we've not looked at preceding the chapters before this, all are oriented toward offerings and sacrifices that are offered to the Lord to atone for sin and to draw the sinner into his presence. That tent in the center of Israel, that sanctuary protected the holiness of God, but it was also a place that was intended to draw us to it, to the splendor of the Lord, to draw us in and encourage us there. All of this pointing Ultimately, to the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ who took the place of sinners and died. The atonement is not our gifts. The atonement is not our good works. The atonement for the sinner is the cost that Christ paid. All sin will be crushed. All sinners will be judged. That is the truth we must land on and believe. But we also celebrate that Jesus Christ stepped in and said, I will take your sin. I will take your judgment. I will pay its full price forever. And Christ doing that for His people. When you look at the Israelites and you compare them with the Midianites, the Midianites were a horrifically corrupt people. Sacrificing children in the fire. Sexual ritual Impurity. I mean, it goes on. You you can study what they did to people and what they did to their culture. They were a horrifically vile people. They were a moral cancer. But when you look at the story of Israel, you don't say they're any a whole lot better. They too were sinners. They too were infected by the wickedness that plagues our heart, as are we. The difference is not us in our performance. The difference is in Christ who takes our place. His righteousness is accounted to us. We take on His standing. All of this is pointing us there. The death and resurrection of Jesus who plundered hell of my rightful place there. He broke sin's power. And he gives to his people the plunders of his victory. Life in his name forever as sinners forgiven. That's his grace. Father, we praise you for it. We thank you for the atonement that is in Christ. We thank you that we do not wield today a sword to take out in judgment those who are lost in sin. But because of Christ crucified and risen, we now take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and we hold it out in life-giving hope to a world that is dying and headed to ultimate destruction. We praise You for teaching us these things in these early ages of salvation history. These sketchings of where You were taking the work. But we praise You now today that we wield a message of Christ crucified and risen for the salvation of the lost, of all nations, tribes, tongues, and people. To carry out this message of hope is our task. And we praise you for the privilege of knowing Christ as Lord and Savior, and we rest in the work that he has done for us. I pray that you draw to Christ anyone who does not know him. You draw them to that light this day in the name of Christ that we pray amen would you join us as we stand and seeing all